Good to see all of you. And uh, what what we're just going to try and uh, what I'll try and do is explain where where I hope we'll go over the the course of these five evenings. Um, so. I guess lockdown, lots of things, changed worlds, changed perspectives, changed personal situations, things we're working through as a church, all sorts of things can occupy our minds. And COVID particularly, I think, has been a real effector of most of, of how most of us think and feel and what's going on. So I, I thought it would just be um, an idea for us to go right back to first principles about what does what does life in the Holy Spirit look like? What, what should what should what is it that we're after? And what more importantly, what is it that God is after? So, what I want to try and do over these five evenings is to is to just dust down the foundations. It's not that they're not there; it's just let's just dust them off again. Let's just look at what it means to be God's people. What does it mean to be a child of God? And what does it mean to live life in the in the power of the Holy Spirit? So over the five weeks, we're going to explore that. And we'll start, um, there's, there's a little bit more teaching component this, this time. And then as we go through the five weeks, there'll be less teaching and more application and more time for you know, ministry and practice and learning how to move in the power of the Holy Spirit as we get further and further into it. But I wanted to begin by sort of putting a bit of a foundation in place, teaching-wise. We'll get some time probably at the end to pray and seek God together and to come and worship a little bit more. So I've sort of planned it that way. So a bit more teaching this time, and then it'll gradually become less and less teaching and more and more application. Does that sound all right? So that's where we're going. So if you miss a week, then they are being recorded, but I'd really you know, love it if you can come along for each one and invite more people because um, they can pick it up as they go along. So um, this week, uh, <laughs> I want to look at God's big story and you. Right, God's big story and you. Where do you fit in God's big story? Because when we understand where we fit in what God is doing, then it really does give us much more confidence um, in life. And just to think, right, okay, I understand what he's trying to do with us and with me, where I fit, what his purpose is, what his intention is, and how the Holy Spirit, particularly important, how God's Holy Spirit, how his presence Uh, is longing to walk with us in daily life and in our collective life together. So what I'm going to try and do, um, and I've only done this twice, and and we'll see how we get on. I'm going to try and preach through the entire Bible in 20 minutes, right? Yeah, no, well, don't say wow, I haven't done it yet. I mean... uh, If if it gets to 9 o'clock and we're still in Deuteronomy, then something's gone wrong, right? Well, you go. Right, so I'm going to try and just take us right through the whole Bible because I think it, it really matters to understand what has God been after all along. Because when we understand what he's been after, it helps us understand how he wants us to be. So, are you ready for it? Seatbelts on, here we go. So first of all, you know it started in the garden. It started in the Garden of Eden. God made the world, he made the garden, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and everything he made was good, and he put Adam and Eve there for relationship with him. That's really, really important. He made us to have a relationship with him. That's God's original purpose for making the entire world. 
understanding that will help us right now, this evening, and from here on inwards to really make sense of what life is all about now. So he made man, made mankind because he wanted a relationship with us. He wanted people who he could have, have, enjoy their company. So the Bible talks about God walking in the cool of the evening, doesn't it? And looking for Adam and Eve and talking with them, fellowshipping with, fellowshipping with them. He gave them responsibility. He asked them to look after the world, to, um, to steward it, to be fruitful, to, be, to multiply. And uh, all the way through the Bible, we get images of God wanting a family, a people, a bride, a household, a nation. So the key thing when it comes to understanding why God made the world is he wanted close proximity with us and he wanted us to have an awareness of his manifest presence with us in daily life, moment by moment, walking with us in unbroken relationship. That was why God made you and me and the entire world. So we've got to understand that before we understand anything else that's happened in history since then. So that was his big longing. Um, Now we know that what happened from there was the fall. Mankind rejected God. God gave us responsibility, choice. We rejected God and we went our own way. He put one little set of rules upon us. He said, just don't eat from that tree because then you'll be knowledge and good of evil. You won't, you won't be living dependently on me if you eat that. So don't eat that because that will break your dependency on me. It will mean that you're cut loose, as it were. And you'll only eat that if you don't want relationship with me. That was basically what he was saying. If you want to go it alone, you'll eat that. But if don't eat that if you like this relationship. If, you, if, you, if you're happy submitting to my lordship over you, then just don't touch that. Now, man thought better, was deceived, thought we want to do it ourselves. We want to take control. We want to be in control of our own destiny. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to make our own choices. We don't need a lord. We don't need anybody telling us what to do. We've got godlike qualities. We've got independence. We've got responsibility. We've got creativity. We can do things ourselves. We can live life ourselves. We don't need you. So we cut that. We took independence. We didn't like having a Lord. Now, God, imagine, well, you've probably experienced this. Most of us have experienced this. You give your heart to someone in your life for whatever reason, be it a romantic relationship or a friendship or a, you know, a cause that you're engaged in or something, and you really give your heart to someone, and then they walk off and break your heart. I mean, it's devastating, isn't it? Hands up if that's happened to you in any area of life. Yeah, nearly everybody. We, we know what that feels like. Well, that's how God felt. That's how he felt. It's, it's, it says it, actually, that when, before the flood, which we'll come on to, it says that God was grieved that he'd made man. Now, it's not that he regretted it because he didn't love us anymore. It was just so painful for him. I thought, I'd have been, he was like he was thinking to himself, I'd have been better off without this pain. This has caused me such pain in my heart. So God flooded the earth, but even then he couldn't kill off man completely. He thought, I I love them too much. So he spared Noah and his family because he was still longing for this reconnection with mankind. And he covenanted after the flood. He looked at what had happened and he said, you know, never again am I going to flood the earth. He put the rainbow in the sky. He said, no matter how bad mankind becomes, I can't can't destroy them. I can't destroy them because I love them. I I want to redeem mankind. I want them back to walk with me in the garden. 
In his mind, he had another way. So now mankind, after this, spread out over the face of the earth. Noah's descendants went out, and mankind was then left on this planet, which looks so marvelous and beautiful as it does now. And um, you see just where we live, don't we? We see amazing sunrises and all sorts of things. If you follow Richard Ward's Instagram, tremendous pictures, Richard, of the sunrise, whatever time of the morning you get up, but you save, every, you save anyone of the rest of us having to get up at that time to see how great it was. So that, but there's this marvellous, beautiful picture. The, the world was incredible. It is incredible, isn't it? But all of us, man, and mankind, people, we're, people are amazing. We're magnificent creatures, capable of, of beautiful things, capable of wonderful things. But yet the world is broken and it's dysfunctional. And in the midst of this beauty, there's terrible pain. And you think, how can something so beautiful be full of so much pain at the same time? How can life be full of such glorious moments and such desperate moments? It doesn't seem right, does it? It feels all dysfunctional. And the Bible talks about thorns and thistles in the earth. It's almost as if there's always something that's going to be making it hard work. And sin and death multiplied throughout the world. And people were left without God and without hope in the world, left to themselves, just wandering the earth, trying to make the best of it, constantly wondering, why am I here? Why am I here in this amazing place that looks so beautiful, and yet I know there's such dysfunction in me? What is it all about? That's how most people you know walk around thinking, because they know they're made for something, but they've lost connection with it. They just don't understand why they are here or why the earth is as it is. That's because all going right back to to the fall. Now, mankind then began to go it alone, thinking, well, we've got to make the best of this, and they begin to get some self-belief, so they attempt to manage without God, and mankind begins to build this tower, this Tower of Babel, it was called. Huge, great big thing, went right up into the sky, really trying to say, we can ascend into heavens ourselves. We can become godlike. We can achieve something so incredible. Mankind can actually solve his own problems. And they, they made this huge, incredible piece of architecture. And out of kindness, God destroyed it. He knocked it down. And he, what's more, he, dis, he dispersed all the peoples over the earth with different languages so they couldn't understand each other. And he didn't do that to be cruel. He did it because it was a, kind, a kindness to them. Because he wanted to show mankind, you cannot do what you're attempting without a saviour. You can't live without a saviour. And I don't want you to think you can. So I just have to show you, whatever you do, you need a saviour. And then God began to take initiative after that. Mankind had tried to go it alone, then God stepped in. Now, this is really important. And God stepped in and took the initiative in salvation's story. And the first thing God did was he called a man called Abraham, or Abraham at that time, who became Abraham. Now, Abraham lived in modern-day Iraq, so bit of a random place to call someone uh, from to save the world. Uh, Abraham was a sun worshipper. I don't mean he laid on a sun lounger. I mean he worshipped the sun. He believed the sun was God. He, 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 had no, he wasn't a godly man looking at, you know, trying to find his way back to the creator, all that. He, he worshipped the sun. And for some sovereign reason, God put his hand on Abraham and he said to him, through you and your descendants, all mankind is going to be blessed. Every nation, every people group, every dispersed language group that I've scattered from the Tower of Babel, through you, your descendants are going to uh, be a mighty people that no t- of every tongue, tribe, people group across the earth, 
and your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Now, Abraham was an old man at that time, and his wife Sarah was an old lady, and they hadn't had any children, and they were past the age where you could have children. But Abraham, this is key, Abraham believed God's promises. And it says he faced the facts that his body was as good as dead, but yet did not waver through unbelief concerning the promises that God had made. And he believed that God was going to do this. Abraham, now this is really important for later, right? So Abraham then is the first man on earth who models to us what it is to be now back in restored relationship with God. And what is the thing that enables Abraham to be back in relationship with God? Simply this, he believed God's promises by faith. He believed what God said. Now, that's how any of us become Christians. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You don't have to earn it, you don't have to do anything for it, you just simply have to believe what God has said. And just like Abraham, we can look at ourselves and think, well, I'm a bad person. Why, how can I be saved by faith? My body's as good as dead. How am I going to produce life? That's exactly what Abraham thought. But yet he didn't waver through unbelief, faced the facts his body was as good as dead, didn't think he'd be able to do by his own efforts what God had promised, but knew that when God made a promise, he always fulfilled it. So Abraham was, as it were, our forefather of faith. We are all children of Abraham. That doesn't mean we're Jewish, or some of you may be of Jewish background. What it means is to be a child of Abraham means we follow in his pattern. We believe God in the same way Abraham believed. That's why in Romans 1.12 it says, To as many as received him, to, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Not born by any kind of human action, but born from above, simply by faith. Maybe tonight somebody might be here who's not a Christian yet, and you think, well, how do I become a Christian? How do I come back into a relationship with God? You just do what Abraham did. You simply believe that if God promises Jesus is the way of salvation, and by faith receiving him into your life, asking him to cleanse you, to connect you back to God, you will be saved in that moment. That's, the, that's how Abraham became the father of many. He trusted what God said. And so it says Abraham set out looking for a city. God had promised him a city filled with all these people. So Abraham set out, and he says he didn't know where he was going, which is another thing to remember. God is the one who leads us. We, we, we're not in charge. He, he sets the agenda. He makes the promises. He sets the agenda. He fulfills everything he says to his people, which is what he wanted, us, wanted Adam and Eve to be in the garden, dependent people in relationship with him who did what he asked them. So Abraham uh, begins uh, his journey. And God then begins to form a people through Abraham. He begins to form this people through Abraham and Abraham amazingly has a child, Isaac. He's this child of promise. Now he also had a child called Ishmael, which was actually Abraham trying to give God a little bit of a hand. So he thought, well, I don't think Sarah's up for it, so I'll find someone else. And Hagar and Ishmael came on the scene. God still blessed Ishmael, but that wasn't the child of promise. Isaac was the child of promise, which just shows we can't manipulate God's promises and try to work them out because it never ends well. Just do what God says, trust him, he will fulfill. Even if it's impossible, he will still fulfill what seems impossible. So Isaac's the child of promise. Isaac then has Jacob and Esau, 
And Esau was the firstborn and should have been the inheritor of, all, of the you know, birthright. But actually, the hand of the Lord was on Jacob. And uh, Jacob then had 12 sons, right? Cue for a musical. And one of those was called Joseph. Now, those, those 12 sons, Joseph and his brothers, all found themselves en- ending up in Egypt because there was a famine. You know the story. I'm just giving you the potted history. They find themselves in Egypt. And out of that... Abraham's promised seed then began to grow, and God's called out people on earth began to form, began to multiply. And the Bible says they became very numerous in Egypt. So you've got God's people, this Israel, being birthed. Many, many people, you know, descendants uh, right from Joseph and his brothers beginning to form, and, and Pharaoh starts to get worried because there's many, many, many of these Israelites now, and he's getting a bit scared of them. So he keeps them in slavery. And then, are you still with me? Yeah, the back row, still with me? Right, sorry, we've got three hours to go. Good, we're still with me. No, not really, we're we're doing quite well. And God then begins to call his people collectively, not just Abraham now, but he begins to speak to his people in, in bondage, in slavery in Egypt. And he begins to give them promises. And he says, let my people go. He says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. I want to take them into a promised land. I want to give them an inheritance. I want them to be my people. I'm going to dwell with them. I'm going to live with them. I'm going to restore what they lost in the Garden of Eden. So Moses has these promises. Wow, I've got to lead these people through into what God is, big, is wanting to restore them to. A land, inheritances. And so eventually they begin this exodus, journeying toward the promised land. They go through this amazing deliverance through the Red Sea where the sea is parted. God miraculously makes a way. It's like a picture of being saved through baptism. As you come, as you come out of Egypt, slavery and, and not knowing God, you're baptized, brought into this, this uh, journey into the promised land. It's a picture of, of what it is to be a Christian. And they were brought into this journey into God's new country. Now, they wandered around for a long while in the wilderness. They didn't quite get there in one go. In actual fact, it took a whole generation to die and a new one to be born before they actually got in there because they kept failing God and going the wrong way and not doing what he told them. But God persistently kept with them, kept with them, kept with them. He said, I want to bring my people through, they began what would become a very, very long journey. So on that journey, God begins to love them and and his presence, again, this is really now where it starts to sort of become key for us here, right? His presence is now beginning to be manifested with his people. He had his presence in the Garden of Eden, lost the presence. God had the presence of himself with Abraham God's people now emerging, God's presence then coming to his people again. And he gives them the law. Moses gives them the law. And uh, the, the law is God saying to his people, look, this is what holiness looks like. If you're connected to me, this is how it would look for you to live. And rather than enable people to come to God, actually the law just makes everybody think, well, I can't do that. It just actually makes me look aware of how bad I am. It's a bit like uh, if you get up in the morning and you're feeling a bit rough and you think, oh, I don't feel very very uh, much to look at today. When you look in the mirror, it confirms your suspicions. And probably it makes you think, no, I didn't realize I was that bad. So the, the law is a mirror. It makes us realize we're worse than we thought we were. 
And what's more, there's nothing you can do about it. Just as when you look in the mirror tomorrow morning, you can't change that. Sorry. You can have a shower and make it go misty, but it's still there. It's still there. It can't be changed. There's nothing we can do to change what the law reveals. So God's people think, well, we, we have to sacrifice them. So they've sacrificed animals. And, and God then uh, gave um, uh, um, instructions for the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was this tent, basically, Whereas the people were wandering around the wilderness trying to find the promised land, every time they stopped, the tabernacle was put up. The tabernacle was a tent, and it had a small tent in it and then a smaller tent. And in the very small tent was the, the law, the Ten Commandments in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God's presence was amongst his people. They couldn't go in, but they knew he was there. They were trying to get there sometimes, other times they could they couldn't. And a high priest could only ever go in once a year or on very special occasions. And even then he had to hide his face. He, and if he got sin, he would die if he went in there. And so they'd sacrifice animals and shed blood, thinking perhaps that will cleanse us. But it never did. They had to keep, keep sacrificing, keep sacrificing, trying to keep the law, the priest offering all these sacrifices. So they could just try to get near to God's presence. But they knew that on their own efforts they couldn't. But nevertheless, God's presence, catch this, God's presence and his desire was to be right in the middle of his people. He wanted to be there, but they knew they couldn't approach him. So then Moses leads them. He doesn't quite make it to the promised land. Joshua gets them in finally after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And God must have been very frustrated you know, in this tent you know, but they just never got it. They, but eventually they get there. They, they get into the promised land. But when they're in there, they get divided. They get defeated. The promised land that God's given them, they all end up fighting with it, one another. And it splits into different sections. And it's all a bit of a mess. And so they say to God, we want a king. You can't lead us. We want a king. Flesh and blood. Someone we can see. Someone who's in our midst, who we, who's like us, who can tell us what to do. And God despairingly says, all right, give him a king. So Saul becomes king. Not a very good king, but he's, he's nevertheless um, uh, an evidence that mankind once more wants to try and do it without God. But he's not, it's not the way that God wanted to do it. So what does God do next? Well, God then looks for a man after his own heart. And he finds David. And he thinks, well, if they've got a king, then at least... Let them have a king who loves me and who could help them back to, to connection with me. So David is then uh, anointed. He becomes uh, king, as it were. And God says, through you, I will establish my kingdom forever. So he's making a promise about something that's beyond the immediate. You'll, I'll establish my kingdom through you, David, forever. There's a promise there. So when they do uh, get through to the promised land, establish themselves, David sets up Jerusalem as the city of God and David begins work on the temple. Now the temple's going to replace the tabernacle. Don't need a tent anymore. We, want a, we, want, we don't need a tent anymore. We want a, a temple, a solid brick-built thing where God's glory is going to dwell in God's city. Now David doesn't quite get the job done and actually Solomon, David's son, completes the temple. But the question is this, is that where God permanently had in mind? Was he, was he looking just for somewhere, a brick-built place where his glory dwelt, and people couldn't know him really, 
They could go perhaps and worship and offer sacrifices, but God's still distant. Does he live in a building ultimately? Is that, is, does he live in a building built by hands? Is there something more that God is looking for? Is there somewhere where man and God can finally come together? Now, David knew when he built the temple, David knew that God ultimately doesn't build it doesn't live in a, a temple built by hands. And David knew that God's city wasn't actually going to be a physical city, but it was something bigger, something, something different. He didn't quite know what he was looking for, but he knew there was something else to come. He knew there was something more glorious that the temple itself and Jerusalem itself would be just a shadow, just, a, just an example of something more glorious to come, to hold that thought. Then the temple disaster, the temple was destroyed and God's people were exiled. Jerusalem was knocked to the ground, the temple was destroyed, it was ransacked, and God's people were carried off into exile into foreign lands, such as Babylon, from where we get the song of Boney M fame, join in if you know it, uh, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You know, God's people are in exile thinking, well, well this isn't home, how can I praise God when I'm in exile, away from where God is? So God's people are, are in exile, Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's destroyed. Now when the exile was over, they returned, and you get stories of Nehemiah walking around the walls thinking, oh, this is a mess, and he wept, and he, tried, he said, let's rebuild this, let's rebuild this. And the temple was uh, rebuilt, but not to its former glory, that, that former glory was lost And it was then that the prophets, if you look towards the end of your Old Testament, the prophets start speaking about another temple that's to come, something glorious, something amazing, something where God dwells permanently and man and God are not separated. It says in the Bible, the prophets spoke longing to understand what it was they were seeing. They couldn't quite understand it, a bit like Abraham. They couldn't understand what it was they were prophesying about. They were used to a tent. They were used to a building. They were used to sacrifices. They were used to distance but they were prophesying about God being intimately intimately present with every one of his people. And they thought, well, how on earth does that happen? Into that context, after a silence of about 400 years, after the prophets had spoken and scratched their heads a lot, into that, Jesus comes. And Jesus now makes sense of everything that had happened up until this point. Jesus is God now with us, present. He's come to be with us, and he's come to live with, live with us, and he's, God's, made it, God's given flesh to his son. So he's fully man, so he's a second Adam, exactly the same as us, exactly the same as you and me, he's a second Adam. If he's not the same as you, then he can't save you, because he can't stand in your place. If he's different from you, he can't save you. So Jesus is a man. He's flesh and blood, human being, just like you and me. But he's all, so he has to stand in our place to be a replacement, as it were, to be a substitute. But he's also fully God, because if he was only a man, then he hasn't got the power to deliver us because he's got sin in him, the same as you and me have. But he was also fully God. So he had the power to deliver us from sin and to break the, 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 um, the uh, sorry, to restore what had been broken, to restore that fractured relationship. 
And as he is crucified, as he's crucified on the cross after living a sinless life and dying in your place, it says this, that the temple curtain, the curtain that was keeping people away from God, the temple curtain was torn and it start, the tear started at the top. So God was, it were, ripping the temple curtain apart, in effect saying, through my son's death, no one needs to now be distant from my presence ever again. Now that's taken a long while to get to that. But if we don't know that journey, we don't really understand what God is looking for. What he's pursued for over those many thousands of years. He was always pursuing this. And you think, what? what? We're, in a, we're in a warehouse. There's not that many of us. It's an October damp night on the East Coast. Is that the pinnacle of God's heart and purpose? Yes. Together with all the other people alive now and who've ever lived, who through faith came to know that relationship with God through Christ. So Jesus gives us access to God through his body. The temple is, the curtain is torn asunder. And we now, this is the, this is the big thing for tonight, we now become the temple where God dwells by his spirit. So if you are a Christian here tonight, God is living in you individually. So when you go about your daily stuff, God is residing in you. You're not distant from him anymore. There's never a time he leaves you. You're, he's living within you. And when we come together even as we are tonight, it doesn't matter how many of us there are, when we come together, this is the temple of the living God. I mean, if we could just get that. God, the God of the universe is here in this meeting. Why? Because we're here. We're presence carriers. And the amazing thing is, we're not trying to kind of Whenever we come together, we're not trying to work something up and get him to visit us as if somehow he's absent. It's more about us learning to recognize, journey with, partner with, yield to, work with, God within us. That's amazing, isn't it? I'm amazed by that. That I wake up every morning, I think, God is with me. Even on your worst day, that, that, that's his habitation. He ha- inhabits your life and mine. He, can't, he doesn't ever leave. Jesus has now become a high priest forever through what he's done and we enter in no, no longer to be um, you know we don't have to keep sacrificing things it's the one the one sacrifice has been done forever for you and me sins past present and future are all covered his presence is with us forever and Jesus said about himself he said destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days and they all looked at the temple and they thought buddy how's he going to how's he going to do that 
But he was talking about himself. He said, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. I'm what, I'm the, I'm the, I'm what God spoke to Abraham about. And when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, taking our humanity into heaven, so we've got a man in heaven today with physical ascended body, you know, features. I don't know how that works. We know those who have died already in Christ, they haven't got their resurrection bodies yet. Jesus has got his. When he returns, he will raise everybody from the dead. At the moment, they're with him, which is far better, it says, but they're disembodied. But their bodies are going to be raised to life incorruptible. And you and I, if we're still alive when Jesus returns, we will be changed in a moment. And heaven and earth will merge in some sort of renewal of all things. And we will walk on this earth again. And its beauty and its splendor will be far greater than we see now. And heaven somehow and earth will merge so there's no separation between the two of them. They will just merge beautifully. And that city of God, that will be the city of God. A city without walls is how it's described. Enclosed by fire. That's what our hope is. That Jesus is coming again. And we feel just now, um, as it were, like through a glass darkly. It says um, how good it will be, you know, when we see him, we will be like him. So we're, we're looking at something we can't fully get quite comprehend everything that's coming we've got a foretaste we've got a seal the bible talks in ephesians 14 the seal of the holy spirit guaranteeing what is to come so when we when we feel and and rely on and dwell upon the fact that god is present with us as by his spirit something within us just longs for what's to come but we haven't got it yet we've got the now but we haven't quite got the not yet but we are God's inhabited place now. And there'll come a, a day when it's all consumed and, and done, done. Everything will be just made beautiful. Sin and death will be, will be done away with. Just a couple more things, right? Because Jesus did all that and then the church comes on the scene. On the day of Pentecost, right? The church is born on the day of Pentecost. Thousands come to Christ on that day and the new temple is now established on the earth. Several thousand people saved in one day and it says they all heard them praising God. What? In their own languages. Remember the Tower of Babel when God confused the languages? On the day of Pentecost, he united all the languages in praise to God. He joined people together in praise of Jesus. He didn't scatter them because of their independence. He gathered them, worshipping Jesus. So everybody could hear their mother tongue being spoken and hearing the glories of God. Then the temple broke out in the earth. The temple broke out. And Joel 2.22 says, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You and I... Not only are our temples of the Holy Spirit, but he wants to use us. He wants to speak through us. He wants to act through us. He wants to demonstrate his, his lordship on the earth through us. We are his ambassadors. We're his people. The temple is mobile. The depot is where we're sitting, but this isn't the, that's not a church. That's a warehouse. We're the temple. And what God wants is for us to be so 
aware, to grow in such daily awareness of, our, of the presence and proximity and manifest presence of God in our lives that we become the temple moving out across the earth. Enjoying God, bringing people to know the Lord, being witnesses, living for him, showing his glory. The glory that the temple, the glory of God's church far outweighs any glory of any temple. And it says, we are his longed-for desire to fellowship with us, to walk with his people. That's what God's always been longing for. 1 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God. Ezekiel 37.27, God says, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. That's what God's got back that he lost in the Garden of Eden. He's got us back. He said, that's my people. That's my people. So the presence of God in, in the Holy Spirit is ours. God is with us moment by moment. We're led by God. We fellowship with God. You and me, whether we're Jew or Gentile or whatever background we come from, no difference. All may come and be living stones fitted into the temple. You know that verse about we are living stones built together. These aren't dead stones. We're living. You... When God saved you, he got exact fit for you in his body, in his temple. You, you fit just right. You think, oh, I wish I was different. I wish I was more gifted. I wish I was more this. I wish I didn't have that problem. I wish I, my personality was different. I wish I was this. I wish I... No, you are a living stone. He's put you in. He's shaped you. And what we are, who we are, he's fitted us just right in there. So it's not an accident you're here. In Lowestoft, in part of this church, that's not an accident. All over the world, God's temple is being built, and we all, we all have a part to play in it. And by the time we got to the end of these five sessions, my real desire is that all of us begin to start living more in our priestly duties, because we are a kingdom of priests. It's not like, oh, leaders or elders or whatever do stuff, and the rest of us watch on. And that, that, That's Old Testament that's what priests did. We're all priests. We're a kingdom of royal priesthood. You can hear God just as much as I can. You can move in the power of God just as much as I can, maybe more. We're all, the Holy Spirit gives his gifts to every one of us as he wills, and all we need to do is cooperate with his manifest presence. Whether you've been a believer two weeks or 40 years makes no difference you're a temp you're part of the temple is that is that landing because yeah, because because it's so if we know who we are it's much easier to begin to act like who we are and you actually don't we don't then feel so restricted by false narratives that the devil just you know or our own sense of Whatever. So, what God is looking for is for us as a church to say, all right, Lord, what can you do with this? <laughs> that would be quite, a, that's a great question to ask God. God, you like a challenge? Bring it on. 
It would be amazing to see what God does. Because this is not about what we can do. This is about us learning to flow and live life in the Spirit. And when the church has fulfilled its final mission and all are gathered in, that's when Jesus will return, not before. So we've got work to do. And in the meantime, he, just, he wants us to enjoy our relationship with him. We have a father in heaven who loves us as much as he loves his son because we're in his son.